Good morning again. Thank you, Chi. So this morning we are returning back to our series in the book of Acts. We're looking at the second half of the book of Acts, and we're calling this series Throwback, because we're looking back to these first churches ever started in the first century, and we're asking the question, what can we learn from these churches, which is in large part why the, uh, the writer of Acts, Luke, why he shared what happened in these churches was to function as a model, as a picture for us to look back towards so that we would know the priorities, the vision, and the mission that God has for the church. To know how to answer the question, what does it mean to be the church? Those of you who have kids know that I think more than ever, the toy fads come and go like faster than ever than they ever have. I know that like last year, there was this thing called the Kendama. Maybe some of you kids had the Kendama. Anybody have that? But it's like long gone. It was like this wooden ball on a stick. And every kid had a Kendama. And before that, it was these silly bands. And these silly bands were all over our house. And now they're just like completely gone. Silly bands, those are lame and old. And maybe when you were a kid, you had... Um, you were part of the Beanie Baby craze. And you had to have the Beanie Babies. And everyone's like, these are going to be worth a million dollars one day. And they're... We're like five cents. My aunt, bought, my aunt bought me one. She's like, this is an investment for you. <laughs> Thanks, all right. And I think I threw it away or something. <laughs> and every Christmas, there's a new Elmo. There's Tickle Me Elmo or Dancing Elmo. These are all the fads that go through. But as Christians and in the church, we can also be susceptible to ministry fads. Maybe something's working at a big church or something's happening that's exciting. We say, let's jump on that. No, let's jump on that. And Acts was given for us to stay rooted, to listen to God give us these pictures that are to guide us and to keep us on track and focused on his mission. So, so far we've looked at five different churches throughout Acts. Now we come to Corinth. And in Corinth we see that Paul ended up staying there longer than any other place up until this point. The title of today's sermon is Enduring Church. And what we see here is that in order for Paul to endure, in order for Paul to stay in Corinth as long as he did, he needed to have something very special happen. Something that was very rare, even as we look at the Bible, this was a very rare event. He needed Jesus himself to appear to him and speak to him. And so what Jesus says to Paul, those are going to be those words right there, that's going to be the focus of the sermon this morning. As we see that Jesus came to Paul at a moment when he was really struggling with fear. He needed encouragement. He needed encouragement to endure. Jesus spoke these very powerful words into that situation, into Paul's life, and they are here for us this morning. Because no matter where we are spiritually this morning, we could be long-time Christians, we've been Christians for many years, like the Apostle Paul, we see that even he, this great Apostle Paul, a very mature Christian, struggled deeply with fear and discouragement. And maybe we're here and we're still exploring the Christian faith, still processing where we stand. Fear can be the thing that holds us back from becoming a follower of Jesus, or it can be actually the thing that draws us closer into that. There are all kinds of fears we might be dealing with right now in this room. I know there are many. There are many who are, have fears about work, maybe your performance at work. 
Maybe your future there at your company. Maybe you have fear of losing your job, fear of finding a job, fear over finances, fears about this election and things that are going to happen in our country, fears about school, fears of losing a relationship, or fear over the breakdown of a relationship that is important to you. We have fears about our kids' futures. These things, all these fears, whatever that might be for you, these can be the most powerful driving forces in our lives. Even as we're sitting here, even as we're sitting here in church, these fears are like sitting there with us as a constant companion. In his book called The Counseling of Jesus, there's a pastor named Duncan Buchanan, and he shares his conclusion from many years of pastoral counseling. He says, fear is the most powerful motivating force, and it's always close to the surface of our lives and reactions. It's at the heart of sin, for it draws us away from God and focuses us on ourselves. He's saying our fears are that powerful. And in my own life, as I think about my own life, as I think about my own pastoral experience, I think he's right. That fear is so often what moves us away from God. Fear is so often what turns us inward upon ourselves. But what I want us to see today as we walk through what Jesus said to Paul is that the opposite can actually be true. And if we see Jesus' words to Paul applied to our own fears then we can see how fear can actually be the thing that God uses to draw us closer to Himself and actually to renew our outward focus on the people and the places that He's put into our lives. So first, we're going to look at the context where Paul was. We're going to talk about the city of Corinth. We're going to get into Paul's life and refresh ourselves as to what's been happening with Paul. And then we're just going to break down each phrase of what Jesus said to Paul, and look at it phrase by phrase. So that's the outline for this morning. First, Corinth. Corinth was quite a city in its day. It was a very large city and a very influential city in the Greco-Roman world. If there was a city motto for Corinth, it would have been, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. It was that kind of place. Some people say that it was 200,000 people even up to half a million or 75 or 750,000 people. They loved their sports. They had the Isthmian Games, which overtook the Athenian Games. So they loved their annual sports celebration. They had two harbors. It was an isthmus. So on either side, they had these really active ports. And they developed a system where they could actually drag a boat from one port to the next port. So all kinds of trade was happening. It was a very wealthy city. People enjoyed all kinds of comfort. But maybe the thing that it was most well-known for was its uh, religious life, which was focused on their temples to Aphrodite, who was the goddess of love. And in that time, and in that culture, they had coined a phrase, Corinthianize. And to Corinthianize meant to live a promiscuous life. So their reputation in that day was being that kind of city. And so when it came to who they listened to, who did they pay attention to, they paid attention to the speakers who were most good-looking, who were the most entertaining, and who had the best rhetorical skill. And this is the place where Paul found himself. It was not an easy place to start a church, and not an easy place to follow Jesus. So that's Corinth. What about Paul? Paul was coming out in his own life of quite a sequence of events. He was driven out of Thessalonica, and that was intense. 
He went to Berea and things were going there, but the guys from Thessalonica came, followed him into Berea and drove him out there. And then he found himself, as we saw a couple weeks ago, in Athens. And so he took that opportunity while he was in Athens to defend the faith and courageously speak before the intellectual elite, but he was mocked there and he was kind of reviled there as well. So he came to Corinth. And although we see that, he had the encouragement of some really good friends. He had some new friends, Priscilla and Aquila. Silas and Timothy met him. When he went into the synagogue, if you look at verse 6, it says, they began to oppose him and revile him. Now, Paul had experienced this kind of thing before, but they were taking it to another level. The NIV says they started to become abusive towards him. It was, it was very personal. It was becoming more intense. And Paul started to react in a more intense way too. He shook his garments and he basically said, I'm done with you. Even though you are my people, you have no interest in what I'm saying to you. You're abusing me. You're abusing what I'm saying, so I'm moving on. But then he goes next door. So he goes next door. And what happens when he goes next door is that the ruler and the leader of the synagogue ends up becoming a Christian. So you just think about what's happening there. Try to put yourself in that moment. Paul is every day going next door to the synagogue where they were abusing him and reviling him. And all this tension, their leader had become a Christian. So day to day he's experiencing this tension in a very hard city like Corinth. So Paul was very passionate. He was very devoted. But he was a real human being. And this took a heavy toll on Paul. One of the scholars who's commenting on this says Paul had hit a low point, and what he needed was a recommissioning into ministry and in his life. We think about that for ourselves. Don't we feel like that sometimes when circumstances are hard in our lives, when there's just tension that we're facing every day? And whether it be in our workplace, whether it be in our relationships and our families, in our marriages, or whatever is causing us fear. Sometimes we get to that place where we're at a low point, and we just need a recommissioning in it so that we're enabled to endure and go on and keep going. These words of Jesus, like they were for Paul, they can be powerful words of recommissioning for us to enable us to endure. So let's look at each of these phrases. The first thing that Jesus says to Paul is, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid or fear not is the most repeated command in the entire Bible. There's actually, I discovered, an internet debate about how many times this command is repeated in the Bible. Because somebody claimed that it was 365 times. Like, one for each day. And people started to dig into that and go, no, 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 that just sounds good on Pinterest, but it's not true. But I printed out this week at least 130 places, probably 150 places or more where this command is repeated throughout the Bible. That's surprising. Why is this command? Out of all commands that God could give us, why is this one, from Genesis to Revelation, the most frequent one? I think there are a lot of reasons. One, God thinks the issue of our fear is very significant. Two, it's something we will repeatedly deal with throughout our lives, so God repeats it over and over to us. And three, fear is something that is common to all of us. It's universal. We all struggle with fear, so God continually speaks to our fears. 
And one of the effects of fear, one of its strategies is that it isolates us and it makes us feel like I'm the only one that has these fears. And so we tend to hide that, deny that, and tell ourselves we shouldn't be afraid. It's not that bad. But on the surface, what God does here, he's doing something that we are told never to do when someone shares their fears with us. He says, do not be afraid. If one of my sons comes to me and says, Dad, I'm scared of the dark. I heard a noise. There's a monster in my closet. Or as they have, I'm afraid I'm going to get hit by the ball when they're going up in the batter's box. If I say, son, do not be afraid. That's not going to help. And I know because I've tried that strategy many times. That's minimizing their fear. That's just dismissing it. Don't be afraid. But that is not what God is doing here. You look at the letter, 1 Corinthians, that Paul wrote to this church. In chapter 2, verse 2, Paul shares with us what he was feeling on the inside when he came into the city of Corinth. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. He was overcome by fear. And when God appears to Paul and says, do not be afraid, he's telling him, I know you are afraid. I see that you are afraid. You don't have to hide it. You don't have to deny it. He's inviting Paul first to acknowledge his fear and say, you don't have to pretend. You are the great apostle Paul, but you don't have to pretend. You are fearful. You are weak. You are trembling. And I know. And God says, do not be afraid so that we would acknowledge our fears. But he also tells us that to say that our fear doesn't have to control us, that there's a way out of our fears. The next thing he says to Paul, the second phrase, is where God starts to show Paul and us the way out of fear. He says to Paul, go on speaking and do not be silent. Now notice, God does not say, do not be afraid. I will take care of everything. There's going to be an easy way around this. You don't have to deal with this anymore. I'm going to take it all away. The way out of our fears is not around our fears, not away from them. God says, I want you to go right into the very thing that you're most afraid of. When God comes to address our fears, why does he do that? Often, he moves us further into the thing that we're most afraid of. Why? I think it's to expose our fears and then to disarm them. In 1 Corinthians, again, I want to read the fuller context there of chapter 2. Paul says, For I decided when I got to Corinth to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. For Paul, I don't think he was afraid of public speaking. He had done that many times. It was how he was going to be perceived and rejected by the people he was trying to proclaim the message of Jesus to. And so in Corinth, it was by moving into, not away from, the thing that he was most afraid of, that Paul would learn at a deeper level that it was not about him. It was not about his skill. It was not about his power. It was not about his ability. But it was about the power of the gospel. So Paul learned in Corinth that God uses us most powerfully in our weakness in our fear, and in our trembling. He couldn't learn this by running away. He couldn't learn this by going around the fear. God said, you need to learn this by going right into it. 
What are our fears? Where God might be wanting to tell us that same thing. Now, we might readily know off the top of our head, this is the fear that I'm bringing with me this morning. Some of us may not know. For many of us, our greatest fears are in our recurring nightmares. I don't know if you have some of those, but I have like two recurring nightmares that always come back to me. One is that I show up to school, like high school, and I'm not fully clothed. So don't, don't run wild here. Most of the time, it's like my, I don't have my shoes on or something, and I'm like, oh, no, what am I going to do? How am I going to go home and get my shoes and all that? And I'm just freaking out because I don't want to be seen. I don't want to be known. I don't want to be exposed. My second recurring nightmare is that all of a sudden I show up to a church or some speaking engagement, and I have no notes. They're gone. I lost them. And it's like time to go in three minutes, and I'm going, okay. What are we going to talk about? How's this going to go? And there again, there's, my, there's one of my deepest fears. The fears of failing, of being seen as inadequate. Thankfully, most of those recurring nightmares, whatever yours are, don't come true, hopefully. But we need to know our fears. We need to name our fears so that we can see how God might be calling us to go right into them to learn that it is about his power and not ours. Neuroscientists tell us that when we're afraid, we're functioning at our lower brain level, in our amygdala. It's a fight-or-flight response of our brain. And this is how we often deal with fear. We either want to fight it and say, this is not going to control me. I will deal with this, or we just want to run away. Instead, we need to feel it, and we need to follow it. Psalm 56.3. David says, when I am afraid... Not I will run away. Not I will fight it off. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. Our fear is actually a gateway into deeper faith. The next thing that Jesus says to Paul is, For I am with you. Often in the Bible, when God says, Do not be afraid, he follows it up by giving a reason for us not to fear. And that reason is often, For I am with you. I think this is because in large part, Our fears and the power that our fears have over us is not just about what we will fear will happen. The thing that the circumstances or whatever we fear might happen in our lives, it's a fear underneath the fear that we'll be alone in whatever might happen, that we'll be abandoned. Some examples. If we're afraid of our our kids for parents not turning out the way that we hope, there's a fear underneath the fear that the blame will be ours. It was up to us, and we'll be alone with that regret and that guilt. Fear of finances. There's a fear underneath the fear of, if something happens financially to me, I'll be all alone. I've got to figure it out all myself, and how will things work out? The fear of facing maybe our personal stuff, the things um, that we've kind of pushed under the surface in our souls, grieving and pain. We fear that. We fear if we go there, we'll be alone with it. We won't know what to do. Or the the fear of failure. And rejection. We might fear failing in a specific way in our jobs, but what we fear underneath the fear is being abandoned and being alone. So when God says, for I am with you, there's so much weight, there's so much power packed into those five words. He said these words to Abraham. He said them to Moses and to the people of Israel in Numbers and Deuteronomy in Psalm 23 to the prophet Jeremiah and Isaiah. He isn't just saying, I'm with you, I'm observing what's happening to you, and I see it. He's saying, I, 
the Almighty God of the universe, I am with you. I am is God's covenant name. His covenant commitment is carried in that name. And with you is God's empowering presence. So these words are covenant promise joined to empowering presence. That whatever we're facing, God is with us in those ways. Whatever He calls us to do, He enables us to do in His strength to carry out. Wherever He calls us to go, He goes before us. Whatever happens to us is never outside of His greater purpose for our lives. Our fears then can be totally reframed based on who's with us in our fears. Psalm 23.4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. So if for some reason you had to walk through the darkest and the scariest part of town, say this was Skid Row in Los Angeles at 1 a.m., if you're all alone making that walk, that's a pretty frightening thing. But if I said to you, I want you to walk down Skid Row at 1 a.m., but also you'll be with Superman. He will be right there with you. He'll just kind of walk with you. Then that would completely reframe that situation. Who is with us in our fears can change everything. Next, Jesus says, no one will attack or harm you. Now, this isn't a blanket promise for all of Paul's life. He did suffer in his ministry. But for this season of his ministry in Corinth, God said, you may be threatened, but nothing will come of it. And Paul's fear of being attacked or harmed would have either caused him to stop teaching and stop sharing the message of the gospel, or it could have caused him to leave and go on to the next city. God is saying, I, I have you where I want you to be. You can trust me to take care of you. Because what was at stake here was more than just Paul's emotional health and his own personal comfort in dealing with his fears. If he was stuck in his fears, he would have missed the opportunity of why God had called him to Corinth in the first place. So this is an important point when it comes to fear, that dealing with our fears is not just about us or improving our lives, but it's also for the sake of our calling. So we don't miss the reason why God has us in the places has called us to the people that he has called us to be with. I was reading a book by an author named Gordon T. Smith called Consider Your Calling, Six Questions for Discerning Your Vocation. And he has questions like, what is God doing in the world? Who are you? What is your life stage? But he concludes the book by saying what might be the most important question for us to wrestle with when it comes to calling is the question, what are you afraid of? And that avoiding this question can be the very thing that keeps us from finding and fulfilling God's calling in our lives. And this is because fear tends to turn us inward. And our fears cause us to insulate ourselves. It's a funny illustration of this. Halloween is tomorrow. I don't know if you're celebrating Halloween or what's going to be happening for your family. But I remember growing up and being very fearful of getting that evil apple from a neighbor that had a razor in there. You heard that story? There's a story that like went all over the United States. It was like, there's people out there putting razors in apples to tear kids' mouths apart and all that. So we were like, take our candy out and inspect it before we ate it. And as I was doing some reading this week, um, there's a sociologist at USC 
Barry Glasner, he used to be there, he wrote a book called Culture of Fear, where he was kind of debunking some of these myths. He said, there has never been a single confirmed death or injury from a stranger poisoning Halloween candy since the first scares surfaced in 1958. So, you don't have to be afraid of that. <laughs> but fear, like that, could keep us inside our house. We're not going to go outside because there might be a razor apple somewhere. Fear is what keeps us inward. It keeps us inside when God might be calling us outward, outside. You are where I want you to be, so you can trust me to take care of you. The last thing that God says to Paul is, I have many in this city who are my people. And God is saying there to Paul, Paul, what you see here is a, is a difficult place. All kinds of obstacles, all kinds of barriers for planting a church, for helping people follow my son Jesus and embracing him. But in spite of that, I am at work here. One of the most difficult aspects about our fears is how they distort reality. It's like we put on a pair of binoculars, but we're looking at things through the wrong lenses. We look at our fears, and we're looking at them through a binocular, and we can't even see anything else. We just see this zoomed-in picture of what we're afraid of. And when it comes to God, often when we're stuck in our fears, we flip the binoculars around. God seems way out there. Is he there? I can't even see him. He seems so distant. What's fascinating to me is to note that there is still a, a church in the city of Corinth today. One of the few places in the book of Acts where we see a church that can trace its lineage from now to this very moment. These very things that were happening with Paul in the book of Acts. What God is saying to Paul here is, I have a 2,000 year plan at work. This is year one. So you can relax. This is not about you. This is not in your control. This is my purpose and plan. As our fears can often exaggerate our own sense of importance, our sense of being in control of our lives and our circumstances. And God is saying to Paul and to you and to me, you are not in control. There's a bigger pur purpose. There's a bigger picture that's at work here. So for many of us, we need to turn the binoculars around whether it is our jobs, whether it is our finances, our marriages, our kids, school, the future, we need to flip it around and remember he is in control, not me. There is a bigger purpose. So how can we do that? When we're stuck, when we're looking through the binoculars and it's like, this is big, this is happening. I don't think I can turn these things around. How, how do we have the power? How does that happen? Timothy Jennings is a neuroscientist. He, he wrote a book called The God-Shaped Brain. He said this, When fear increases, love, growth, development, and healthy thinking decrease. When love increases, not only does fear decrease, but growth, development, and healthy thinking all improve. Fear and love are inversely proportional. And that's the key statement. Fear and love are inversely proportional. 1 John 4.18 says, Perfect love drives out fear. Fear is driven out as we turn those binoculars to perfect love. 
the love that has been shown to us and given to us in the gospel. To remember that Jesus entered into, Jesus experienced our greatest fear and his greatest fear so that we would never have to. The thing we should be most afraid of, the fear that is underneath all of our fears, is that we would be separated from the loving presence of God. That we would be closed off to God's loving presence. For God to say to us, I am not with you. But on the cross, Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Instead of hearing the words, Fear not, for I am with you, Jesus heard silence. Despite all the ways that we run away from God, despite all the ways that we resist God, God, in Christ, ran towards us. He was forsaken so we would never have to be, no matter how great our fears. This is the ultimate antidote for our fears. Perfect love driving out fear. In the Lord's Supper, which we will celebrate in just a minute, is this tangible reminder of God's perfect love. So this morning, and in a moment, as we come, I want to invite you, bring your fears with you. Come into the presence of the one who has perfect love. So you can bring those fears with you and leave them there. So you can hear the words, do not fear for I am with you. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these powerful words. Fear is a part of our lives, and you know that. There are fears that are welling up. There are fears that are controlling us. There are fears that are impacting all of our lives. And we thank you for such powerful words. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. And I pray now that as we let those words sink in, as we come to the picture of perfect love, the body of your Son broken, his blood shed, that you would do work even now, even this morning, to drive out our fears and help us stand more firmly in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.